As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. Picture it. The year is 1816. Four well-dressed and fashionable young adults are gathered around a flickering fireplace in Geneva, Switzerland. It's summer, but you wouldn't know it because the sun hadn't shone for months. They didn't know it, but a volcanic eruption in Indonesia the year before had catapulted millions of metric tons of ash into the atmosphere, blanketing the world in bleak darkness. The foursome enjoyed considerable celebrity in their home country of England. The eldest among the four, Lord Byron, was escaping crushing debts and rumors of incest in England. The other three, Mary Godwin Shelley, her husband Percy Shelley, and her sister Claire, were attempting and failing to escape London's dreary weather with a visit to their friend Byron. Contemplating the bleak landscape, Mary wrote, Never was a scene more awfully desolate. To escape what came to be known as the year without a summer, the group holed up in a Swiss villa and challenged each other to pass the time by telling the best ghost stories. It was the only activity that seemed appropriate given the dreary weather. Several notable literary works emerged from this friendly storytelling competition. Lord Byron's poem, Darkness, and the seeds of a novel about a blood-sucking man which was used later by John William Polidori to write The Vampire. By far, the most important work conceived during this blustery retreat was written by the teenaged Mary Godwin Shelley. It was her debut novel. The novel garnered attention immediately after it was published in 1818, prompting a French edition and an English reprint in short order. The 1831 edition was in such demand that it required four reprints in Mary Shelley's lifetime. In 1845, American presses issued their first edition, though they'd been printing pirated editions for decades. What exactly was it about this work that captured the imagination of Shelley's contemporaries? We have some ideas. The scientific revolution, 
gender crisis, literary romanticism, and body-snatching panics among them. That's right, folks. Today, we're talking about the world's first sci-fi thriller, the gothic horror novel, Frankenstein, or the modern Prometheus. This wonderful episode is a redo of one that we made much earlier that we came to really love, but the audio quality was not so great. Yeah. So we decided, let's have a second go at it. Yeah. And we're really excited. We can't wait. Yeah. (laughs) I'm Marissa. And I'm Sarah. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. We've got some amazing supporters out there in our Patreon community, and we want to give a special thanks to our Augur and Excavator supporters. Thank you, Lauren, Colin, Christopher, Peggy, Danielle, Maggie, Iris, Anne, and Maddie, for being so generous in your support of our work. Before we get started, we should probably summarize the story of Frankenstein for our listeners who've not had the pleasure of reading it. And you should. Yes. So full disclosure here, though, this summary was written by Sparknotes, literally. The people at Sparknotes are experts at extracting the most meaningful parts of any work and including them in their summaries. So I decided not to reinvent the wheel. So uh, here goes, but just the rest of the episode entirely written by us. So here we go. In a series of letters, Robert Walton, the captain of a ship bound for the North Pole, recounts to his sister back in England the progress of his dangerous mission. Successful early on, the mission is soon interrupted by seas full of impassable ice. Trapped, Walton encounters Victor Frankenstein, who has been traveling by dog-drawn sledge across the ice and is weakened by the cold. Walton takes him aboard ship, helps nurse him back to health, and hears the fantastic tale of the monster that Frankenstein created. This, for some reason, is the part of Frankenstein that I always forget. I'm like, wait a yeah. minute, who is this guy? <laughs> yeah, except the Northwest Passage episode, I think we you mentioned I Frankenstein. Think we did talk and about so then it, yeah. I was like, oh yeah, like I, I yeah, 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 I forget it too. Um, Okay. Victor first describes his early life in Geneva at the end of a blissful childhood spent in the company of Elizabeth Lavenza, his cousin in the 1818 version, but in the 1831 edition, his sister, um, and also his friend Henry Clerval. Victor enters the University of Ingolstadt to study natural philosophy and chemistry. There, he is consumed by the desire to discover the secret of life. And after several years of research, he becomes convinced that he has found it. Armed with the knowledge he has been seeking, Victor spends months feverishly fashioning a creature out of old body parts. One climactic night, in the secrecy of his apartment, he brings his creature to life. When he looks at the monstrosity that he has created, however, the sight horrifies him. After a fitful night of sleep, interrupted by the specter of the monster looming over him, he runs into the streets, eventually wandering around in remorse. Victor runs into Henry, who has come to study at the university, and he takes his friend back to his apartment. Though the monster is gone, Victor falls into a feverish illness in a very romantic literature sort of sense (sighs) where like i am so distraught that i will become ill which happens in all those you need to the vapors right Right. 
Sickened by his horrific deed, Victor prepares to return to Geneva, to his family, and to health. Just before departing Ingolstadt, however, he receives a letter from his father informing him that his youngest brother, William, has been murdered. Grief-stricken, Victor hurries home. While passing through the woods where William was strangled, he catches sight of the monster and becomes convinced that the monster is his brother's murderer. Arriving in Geneva, Victor finds that Justine Moritz, a kind, gentle girl who's been adopted by the Frankenstein household, has been accused. She's tried, condemned, and executed, despite her assertions of innocence. Victor grows despondent, guilty with the knowledge that the monster he has created bears responsibility for the death of two innocent loved ones. Hoping to ease his grief, Victor takes a vacation to the mountains. While he is alone one day, crossing an enormous glacier, the monster approaches him. The monster admits to the murder of William, but begs for understanding. Lonely, shunned, and forlorn, he says that he struck out at William in a desperate attempt to injure Victor, his cruel creator. The monster begs Victor to create a mate for him, a monster equally grotesque to serve as his sole companion. Victor refuses at first, horrified by the prospect of creating a second monster. The monster is eloquent and persuasive, however, and he eventually convinces Victor. After returning to Geneva, Victor heads for England, accompanied by Henry, to gather information for the creation of a female monster. Leaving Henry in Scotland, he secludes himself on a desolate island in the Orkneys and works reluctantly at repeating his first success. One night, struck by doubts about the morality of his actions, Victor glances out the window to see the monster glaring in at him with a frightening grin. Horrified by the possible consequences of his work, Victor destroys his new creation. The monster, enraged, vows revenge, swearing that he will be with Victor on Victor's wedding night. Later that night, Victor takes a boat out onto a lake and dumps the remains of the second creature in the water. The wind picks up and prevents him from returning to the island. In the morning, he finds himself ashore near an unknown town. Upon landing, he's arrested and informed that he'll be tried for a murder discovered the previous night. Victor denies any knowledge of the murder, but when shown the body, he is shocked to behold his friend, Henry Clerval, with the marks of the monster's fingers on his neck. Victor falls ill, raving and feverish, and is kept in prison until his recovery, after which he is acquitted of the crime. Shortly after returning to Geneva with his father, Victor marries Elizabeth. He fears the monster's warning and suspects that he will be murdered on his wedding night. To be cautious, he sends Elizabeth away to wait for him. While he awaits the monster, he hears Elizabeth scream and realizes that the monster had been hinting at killing his new bride, not himself. Victor returns home to his father, who dies of grief a short time later. Victor vows to devote the rest of his life to finding the monster and exacting his revenge, and he soon departs to begin his quest. Victor tracks the monster ever northward into the ice. In a dog sled chase, Victor almost catches up with the monster, but the sea behind them swells and the ice breaks, leaving an unbridgeable gap between them. At this point, Walton encounters Victor. Remember Walton? <laughs> and the narrative catches up to the time of Walton's fourth letter to his sister. Walton tells the remainder of the story in another series of letters to his sister. Victor, already ill when the two men meet, worsens and dies shortly thereafter. 
When Walton returns several days later to the room in which the body lies, he's startled to see the monster weeping over Victor. The monster tells Walton of his immense solitude, suffering, hatred, and remorse. He asserts that now that his creator has died, he too can end his suffering. The monster then departs for the northernmost ice to die. And scene. <laughs> Not a lot like, going on in that yeah. novel. It's freaking nuts. I know. There's just so it's much nuts. crap going on. You can see why I wanted to use Spark Notes instead of trying to tell the story myself. Because right. it's so yeah. it would just, it's so meandering that I right. just I was yeah. And whenever I try to summarize <clears throat> it, I end up focusing too much on certain things and leaving other things completely right. out. Like you remember the part where he creates the monster. Yeah. And then I remember, like, them dying on the ice. Like, those are the two things that stand out in my mind. I right. always forget about, like, oh, there's Walton, and then there's Clairvaux, and then the marriage thing. Like, yeah. Yeah. No, I always, like, just, I always focus on the, like, him wanting a, a spouse or whatever. Like, right. I don't know. I just, yeah. So, so there's a lot going on. Yeah. Right. So, um, as we said in our opening, Frankenstein was published in 1818. But most of the action took place at some unspecified earlier time in the 18th century, which is during the era of enlightenment. Keep in mind, this would have been nearly a century after the scientific revolution in the 1600s. During the scientific revolution, scientists like Isaac Newton and Francis Bacon demonstrated the importance of empirical research and developed the scientific method. Several scientists directed their energies toward understanding the human body. At first, Mediterranean Europe served as the vanguard of medical science. In their quest to understand and represent the human form on canvas and in marble, Italian Renaissance artists took to studying human anatomy. Italian city-states like Venice and Florence housed the intellectual centers of medical science. Scientists from all over Europe traveled to Italy to study human anatomy. Andreas Vesalius, for example, was born in Brussels in 1514, but studied medicine at the University of Padua. Vesalius studied the classical texts like everyone did, but like Renaissance artists, he also had an interest in human anatomy. He was known to go into charnel houses and cemeteries to examine skeletons. Earlier, while he lived in Paris, he had snuck to the gallows to try to examine executed corpses. Of course, he was doing this without approval from the proper authorities because he was frustrated with the inadequacy of his anatomy lessons in medical school. As he studied and his reputation grew, occasionally people came to him for answers that other doctors couldn't provide. After his graduation, he accepted a position at the University of Padua teaching surgery and anatomy. He felt that dissection was vital to medical training and so made the dissection of cadavers a major part of his teaching. As an anatomy professor, he was allotted access to a certain number of bodies. Where did these bodies come from? Well, as we discussed in our pathology episode, most dissected bodies belong to executed criminals. Occasionally, someone donated a body for dissection, usually to find out what had killed a loved one. However, in an age before refrigeration, performing dissections was a tricky process that could only be done during cold winter months to prevent putrefaction. Even with the cold weather, there was only so much that they could do to stop the body from decomposing. They performed dissections in an order that prioritized the body parts that decomposed more rapidly. First, the heart, bowels, and brain, then the muscles, then the bones. After dissection, most remains were cleaned and prepared into articulated skeletons that could be used to teach anatomy even without the flesh. 
One of Vesalius's skeletons is still on display at the University of Basel in Switzerland, which I think is really cool. I've mm-hmm. I've shown my students pictures of it. Mm-hmm. This whole process of anatomization, like going from the the first dissections to the um, articulated skeletons, could take somewhere between three to four weeks. So imagine what that smelled, smelled like. like. <laughs> Both of us smelled like. <laughs> Um, Vesalius still only got a limited number of bodies. People weren't executed every day, and he needed to negotiate with local authorities uh, every time he wanted to secure one. So to supplement the small number he might get from local authorities, he also occasionally received a body from his students, which they stole from local cemeteries. In some cases, Vesalius instructed his students to steal bodies when he needed something in particular. For example, during his attempts to understand women's reproductive systems, he had a student steal women's bodies from graveyards. So if you think about it, women's bodies would have been probably in shorter supply because fewer women were executed as criminals than men, right? So this was kind of risky because it could be discovered if someone recognized the corpse. In one case, he removed the woman's skin to prevent her family from being able to identify her. And this is actually the lady whose anatomy is used for that illustration showing the inverted penis uterus that... um, Yeah. It's, like, supposed to be a uterus, but it looks right. exactly like a hairy penis. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And it's and that's, <clears throat> I think, um, Thomas Lecker uses that as, like, his one sex, one of his one sex theory mm. things. That people thought that women's genitals were men's were genitals inverted. turned inside out. Yes. Yeah, yeah exactly. Vesalius published Tabulae Anatomicae Sex in 1538. In 1543, he wrote De Humani Corporis Fabrica. He commissioned the illustrations so that he could use them with his students. Medical education uh, largely involved reading, and for the most part, the reading was in the classical texts. Classical medical texts being like Galen, Hippocrates, uh, things like that, Mm -hmm. um, Avicenna. There had been very little hands-on experience and absolutely no clinical practice. Sometimes, depending on the school, students would see a dissection after they did the reading, but most often the dissection was of an animal, which would have been much more easily, um, you know, acquired, Mm -hmm. not a human. With these illustrations, Vesalius hoped to be able to provide his students at least with anatomical knowledge. Vesalius wanted not only to disseminate anatomical knowledge in his lectures, but also to publish it and make it more widely available. After the work of Vesalius, we have the establishment of a real tension about the meanings of human bodies after death. Increasingly, medical science and the practice of medicine became centered on the knowledge of human anatomy. For centuries, there had been a wide variety of different kinds of medical practitioners, apothecaries, midwives, surgeons, folk healers, whatever. Right. Yeah. Medical doctors had been more akin to philosophers with some specialized knowledge. For instance, that the big thing during this time period that doctors, you know, were called on to do were to interpret the colors of urine. So you have all these really wild urine charts. It's like this is what blue urine means, things like that. But they they were really just one. Doctors were really just one of several options. A detailed knowledge of anatomy had the power to change that calculation. It was anatomists that had the ultimate power over the body. It was the anatomist who could cut and break and remove with impunity. They could reduce human bodies into just a bunch of parts. For centuries, this power had been relegated to low-born and poorly educated practitioners like barber surgeons. But this was about to change. 
Anatomizing became an activity achieved by the learned. It meant learning a kind of specialized medical language, one only shared by fellow doctors. According to one historian, quote, anatomical dissection served as the ritual that inducted young men into the cult of medical knowledge. The shared anatomical experience initiated the students into the fraternity of dissectors, end quote. In other words, this is not something that other people were allowed to do. For an average person, looking at body parts or probing the body was desecrating a corpse, and this was against the law. Right. It would look kind of creepy if you were just, right. you know, playing with dead bodies. All yeah, time. so this is kind of part of the professionalization <clears throat> of right. medicine. During the scientific revolution, then, the dividing line between low-born barber surgeons and elite, classically trained physicians became blurred. No one exemplified this better than William Harvey. Um, he lived from 1578 to 1657, just to kind of give you, um, I don't know, let you know where we are in time. Right. So he was very well educated as a doctor in both Italy and England. He was a working practitioner at St. Bartholomew's Hospital in London, where he evaluated patients and offered advice. At this point, barber surgeons were the skilled, but once again, uneducated, laborers performing the dirty work. Hospitals were not places like they are today. Most often, they treated people who were unable to get private treatment at home. Even so, St. Bartholomew's was a great place to get clinical experience. In 1615, Harvey was appointed Lumley Lecturer for the College of Physicians. He would lecture twice a week for an audience of students and other doctors. Harvey, because of this job, Harvey was authorized to use up to four bodies per year for anatomical dissection. A surgeon did the actual cutting while Harvey stood over the body and lectured. Harvey married the daughter of Lancelot Brown, the personal doctor to Elizabeth I, James I, and Charles I. That's a lot of firsts. Yeah. I never thought about that. Yeah. This eventually led to his own appointment as King Charles I's personal physician. As a researcher, Harvey was curious about the circulatory system. His work on the human circulatory system is, you know, undoubtedly his most important legacy. In Harvey's time, the dominant interpretation of blood circulation was based on ancient Galenic theories of, of how the body worked. Mm -hmm. The Roman physician Galen had um, held that there were two kinds of blood. One created in the liver and one created in the heart. Galen also believed that blood was consumed by organs and that it moved in a tidal motion, flowing from place to place like the ocean tides. I just wanted to what? interject that his idea that there was two kinds of blood was actually based on vivisections that he had done because he had seen venous blood and arterial blood and they're two different, different colors. colors. Right, because one's so oxygenated like, and one's not. Right, right, and so he, like, it was... It makes sense that his, like, there's a logic to the fact that he was yeah. like, well, there's two different kinds of blood. Right. Like, to us, we're like, what a dingus. Right. But, like. Well, now we know there's, like, six different kinds of blood because we have <laughs> blood groups or blood types. Right. But, but no, like, no, I'm just being silly. It's just like, interesting that, like, you know, it is ridiculous that this, when you look at it, look at Galen's ideas about circulation, it's kind of ridiculous. But also, there was a logic to how he came yeah, up with it. Yeah, it's know? empirical. Right. Which is, like, <clears throat> a legitimate form of yeah. experimentation. Right, yeah. right, right. So, um, so yeah, he's saying that this blood, it flows in the body from place to place, kind of like ocean tides, right? So Harvey wanted to understand these things, and he had the rare privilege of access to bodies because of his lectureship. 
As an empiricist, Harvey believed in ocular demonstrations. So in other words, this is performing experiments and gaining knowledge with eyewitness rather than drawing up arguments based on your readings of other theorists and philosophers, right? So he's talking about experiential hands-on learning, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. He also had access to living patients at St. Bartholomew's. He did various experiments with tying ligatures around a man's arm to observe how blood flow was cut off. He then could see the raised veins, right? Like if you have a tourniquet on an arm, right? He also tried to use his finger to move the blood backwards, but realized that blood could only and would only move in one direction through the veins, rather than sort of moving back and forth tidally, as as Galen sort of argued. Even then, the only way that he could learn about how blood traveled was through vivisection, which I just mentioned, which is the process of dissecting animals while still alive to see the ways their organs function while they are still operating. After all, you know, blood circulation ceases at the point of death. So it's hard to, you know, use a corpse to figure out how the blood moves. Right. For instance, in 1636, during a lecture in Bavaria, um, Harvey sliced open the chest of a live dog. And this dog was not anesthetized or under any sedatives or anything. It's just tied down Mm -hmm. so that he could demonstrate the beating of the heart. He said, quote, The heart's active phase is contraction when it drives out the blood as if it were by force, as I shall now demonstrate. Then he cut the dog's pulmonary artery to show that the blood spurted out under pressure. Mm, Poor baby. I know. And there are like... um, paintings dem- like showing these mm-hmm. Harvey doing these things but other medical students doing these yeah. things too and I you know I have them in my powerpoints when I yeah. talk about this and my students are all like oh yeah I mean I'm not even like a dog person and that makes my heart right hurt. Yeah, yeah yeah he also used deer from Charles the first private hunting parks which was a very very rare privilege I mean that was something that really only super fancy people yeah for like sure. earls yeah. and stuff right um, his relationship with Charles I was so intimate that when Charles became aware of a medical phenomenon, he brought it directly to Harvey's attention. A young man named Hugh Montgomery became gravely injured as a child after he suffered a serious fall. And I think it was during a hunting um, activity, right? So what happened was a cavity opened up in his chest where an abscess formed, and that allowed observers to see Montgomery's heart from the outside. Charles I summoned Montgomery to court and sat with Harvey observing his heart and discussing its working. Right. Can so you he, imagine? No. You would think he would be like severely disabled, but apparently he was pretty able bodied. Like he was like like he just he like just functioned normally, yeah. but his heart was like it wasn't on the outside, but there his right. I, I would imagine his, his like ribs and sternum must have been or damaged or yeah, very Jeez. strange. So in 1628, Harvey published his major study of circulation called De Motu Cordis, or the motion of the heart, in which he argues correctly that blood is pumped around the body in a circular motion by the heart. The work was dedicated to Charles I, and Harvey remained a staunch monarchist, loyal to the crown, all through the English Civil Wars that saw Charles's execution and the toppling of the British monarchy. Harvey changed the human body. Previously, the body had been something that people believed was created and set in motion by God and God alone. God had started the blood moving and kept it moving. The body had been divinely designed. It was made in God's image. But now, according to Harvey's research, the body was instead more like a machine, a part pumped blood, and that's what kept you alive. 
It's a scientific and medical discovery, but it's also a philosophical and religious one. The body is more like a mechanical machine than it is like the image of God. So these anatomical findings were reinforced by the world of ideas. French philosopher René Descartes theorized that one can only learn about the world and further the studies of science, math, etc. through real-world observations. Dream interpretation, for instance, brought no real knowledge. It's not rational. It's not real. It's just pretend. Um, Descartes' philosophy was called rationalism. It championed the seeking of truth through intellectual investigation rather than through experiments or using the senses, right? So Harvey's using his senses, his sense of smell, sense of sight, to figure out what's going on. And Descartes was saying, no, the senses, um, he's saying they are irrational, they're immeasurable, and they're subject to feelings. And these feelings muddy the waters, you know, these feelings like fear and hope change the way that you perceive things. Mm -hmm. So Descartes' ideas triggered a contest between rationalists, like Descartes, right, who's focusing on thinking and intellectual investigation, Mm -hmm. and empiricists like Newton and Bacon and Harvey, Mm -hmm. um, who focus on feeling and sensation and Mm -hmm. experiential hands-on learning. That's interesting because they're very interconnected. Yeah, to us, Harvey's not... That's where we get to the Enlightenment, where they come together. Okay, okay. Sort of. So um, as the scientific revolution wound down, philosophers in England, Scotland, France, and the Netherlands continue to theorize about science's relationship to religion, society, and humanity. They became known as the philosophes. Um, These are important public intellectuals whose ideas had immediate and measurable impact on ordinary folks, right? So before this, all these fancy scientists, they're doing these amazing things, and it's trickling down a little bit, especially in academic communities and literate communities, right? Mm -hmm. But, like, ordinary people Mm -hmm. weren't like, oh, yeah, gravity, blood circulation. Like, they didn't, you know, they're not. They weren't trying to communicate to the public. Exactly. What would be the point? The public is stupid and and brutish, right? Right. Like, what's the point? They don't really care. Three such philosophes were Voltaire, who lived from 1694 to 1778, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who lived from 1712 to 1778, and Immanuel Kant, who lived from 1724 to 1804. Can I ask a stupid question? What? Did they, did they both, did they mean to die in 1778, both of them? Yeah, they held hands and just jumped off a cliff together. <laughs> but, like, is that, like, for a reason that I'm too stupid to know? Or was it just no, an accident? just an accident. That's weird. Don't you think that's weird? Both yeah, but it happens again in the Romantic period that, like, everyone dies in the same, like, year in 1820. It's not because something. the French were like, now it's time to kill Voltaire? No, that hadn't happened yet. Oh, okay. okay. The French I, Revolution I wasn't doesn't sure. happen until 1789. That's so what I thought. Yeah. Okay. No, no, no. Okay. I'm not that stuff. No, no. Okay. No, I know. Okay. Anyway. All three argued for a civil order based on natural law and science based on reason. Voltaire championed the importance of education, particularly historical education. We agree with you, Voltaire. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) He believed that historians needed to write history based on a strict adherence to evidence and facts rather than hearsay or rumor or to serve particularly political ends. Even more importantly, he railed against superstition, dogma, and irrational thinking. Immanuel Kant rejected a society ruled by the doctrine and dogma of the Roman Catholic Church. 
On the meaning of enlightenment, he wrote, quote, enlightenment is leaving one's self-caused immaturity. Immaturity is the incapacity to use one's intelligence without the guidance of another. Such immaturity is self-caused if it is not caused by lack of intelligence, but by lack of determination and courage to use one's intelligence without being guided by another. Have the courage to use your own intelligence is the motto of the modern enlightenment. So you can see how Voltaire's and Kant's ideas were hostile to both organized religion and to the kind of folksy paganism that had shaped ordinary people's lives for centuries, right? So folk healing and folk remedies and these old sort of like pagan um, uh, ways, right? As well as Catholic or Protestant religion, right? So um, with the scientific revolution, we have some... um, hostility towards a religion, right, to start with, and now we're seeing even more. So what was this self-caused immaturity that Kant criticizes so sharply? He's not just talking about one person, but of people in general. This self-caused immaturity was people's unquestioning adherence to religion. In the centuries prior to the Enlightenment, people had largely been motivated by and indeed controlled by religion. The Catholic Church did this by controlling, for example, the language of the Bible. Catholic masses and religious texts were in Latin, so these are inaccessible to uneducated people who didn't learn Latin. And we should point out that's why Vesalius's writings and Harvey's writings were published in Latin as well. Right. That was the language of the learned. And that's why there's no... And it was was a... um, What's it called? It was a lingua franca. So, like, people in any European yes. country could read it, right. but only if you're fancy. Right. <laughs> right. So, like, that's another reason why nobody is even trying to communicate de motu cordis right. to, like, the peasants living in, you know, right. wherever. And they still have, like, their local barber surgeon who just learned his trade from his dad or right. whatever. Yeah, and right. all he's going to do is chop off your finger when it gets infected. Right, like, exactly, yeah. to, like, save your life. Right, right. So um, the Protestant Reformation remedied this issue a little bit, uh, but most of Europe remained Catholic. Moreover, some of the more conservative Protestant churches, like Lutherans and the Church of England, for example, maintained a hierarchy that made the best educations available only to the elite. So even though the Protestant Reformation made the Bible available in, um, I would keep wanting to say Vulgate, but that's not, I mean, it is vernacular. (laughs) Even though the Protestant Reformation meant that, like, the Bible was available in the vernacular and lots of other readings were also becoming available in the vernacular, There was still a very strict hierarchy and patriarchy that, like, made it so it's not like ordinary people are reading all these things. Right. Right. Absolutely. Why was this, right? Education was dangerous. The economically oppressed, if suddenly well-educated, would stop conceiving of those in positions of power as somehow inherently better than they were. They may begin to think above and beyond a blind adherence to religion. During the Scientific Revolution, and even more so during the era of the Enlightenment, religion began to move away from the center of people's lives. Think of the name of the movement, right? The Enlightenment. It was about moving away from the darkness of dogma and blind faith and toward the light of scientific investigation, rationality, and lived experience. So Rousseau's ideas, remember, he's the third person from the Enlightenment that we mentioned. These His ideas also challenged the traditional worldview, but in a different way. He rejected this old-fashioned and religious doctrine that stated that all men are naturally wicked or violent, right? That's like we'll see with, like, Puritan New England, right? The idea is, like, all men are wicked and horrible, and we need to keep you under control, yes. right? In the words of our of 
Professor Tamara Thornton, you are vile worms. Exactly. Right? Vile, vile worms, right? And you need the, the healing grace of God. Exactly. So um, instead, Rousseau argued that people were inherently a tabula rasa, or blank slate, that needed to be written on. Humans, he believed, were innately good, and their environments were responsible for shaping them into what they would become. If they were guided toward education and well-formed intellects, they'd be rational, intelligent human beings. If they were guided toward an irrational, violent, or asocial path, they really might resemble the wicked humans described in dogmatic lore. It's easy to see how Rousseau's ideas served as a foundation for behavioral sciences like psychology and sociology, right? He asked the question, how does someone's life experience as children, as adolescents, form them into the adults that they became? The Enlightenment can be summed up in this Latin motto, sapere aude, dare to know. So how does any of this <laughs> bring us back around to Frankenstein? Well... In the story, as we, you know, kind of got the, the recap a little bit, but to be a little bit more specific about the part where he goes to university, you know, he grows up reading these old, old texts from medical thinkers like uh, Paracelsus, who we, we don't have time to talk very much about who Paracelsus was. But no, he was like late medieval. Yeah, he was early. he was like very active during the Black Death um, and had all sorts of, you know, wacky theories. His name was, what was his name? Um... Theophrastus Bombastus von Hohenheim. No, Philippus Theophrastus Bombastus von Hohenheim was his real name. And nobody know that. No. And nobody knows how he got the name Paracelsus, except that the, the, one of the prevailing theories is that he just gave himself the name. <laughs> he was like, because, this is my nickname. Because now. Paracelsus translated to better than Celsus. Like Celsus was another medical thinker. Uh -huh. And he was like, I'm better than Celsus. Oh, anyway. Man. I he sounds Paracelsus. like a dick. He's freaking crazy. <laughs> anyway, so he had grown up reading these old, old, you know, centuries old texts from people like Paracelsus. So when he arrives in Ingolstadt to study, his professor tells him this, quote, Every minute, every instant that you have wasted on those books is utterly and entirely lost. You have burdened your memory with exploded systems and useless names. Good God, I little expected in this enlightened and scientific age to find a disciple of Albertus Magnus and Paracelsus. My dear sir, you must begin your studies entirely anew. <laughs> then he goes to his first chemistry lecture with Professor Waldemann. Well, probably it's Waldemann, right? I don't, I don't know. know. With Professor Waldemann, he talks about how the old sciences, alchemy, are dead, but that the new um, philosophers quote, indeed perform miracles, quote, they penetrate into the recesses of nature and show how she works in her hiding places. They ascend into the heavens. They have discovered how the blood circulates and the nature of the air we breathe. They've acquired new and almost unlimited powers. They can command the thunders of heaven, mimic the earthquake, and even mock the invisible world with its own shadows, end quote. It's like the best quote from the entire It's book. great. It's yeah. wonderful. Um, the thinkers of the Enlightenment wanted people to explore, discover, and know things. Their reception by ordinary folks inspired a change in attitude towards scientific exploration and investigation. So if the scientific revolution changed the attitudes of elite scientists and mathematicians, the Enlightenment worked to bring these changed attitudes to the rest of society. There was a sense that in a rational world, science and medicine would certainly unlock the secrets of the universe with enough study. 
So in the last quarter of the 18th century, people were feeling like there's really nothing science cannot solve or mysteries that it can't crack. This included political philosophy, inequality, and social strife. But there are always two sides to every story. For every proponent of modern science and enlightened thought, there was a detractor. For every atheist, anarchist, and anatomist, there was a faithful adherent or spiritual devotee who sensed danger in humanity's new desire to unravel God's secrets. Some of these skeptics asked worthy questions. Is there a sense in which the scientific method and intellectuals dabbling in society are themselves dangerous? Are humans supposed to penetrate the recesses of nature? Can we go too far? Are there moral or ethical questions in knowing or discovering too much? Are there times that in the quest for knowledge, we actually cause more harm? There were several events in the later 1700s and early 1800s that brought these questions to the fore and made Frankenstein a hit. It would have been natural for Mary Shelley to ask these questions through the novel of Frankenstein. So here's a good reminder to everyone who's listening that scientific progress was never a straight upward trajectory, right? We're not just seeing this like, um, you know, line just going up. It's getting better and better, right? right? So it hits many bumps in the road. Two of these aforementioned bumps were the French Revolution and I would say a gender crisis that mm-hmm. happens around the same time. Right. All one needs to do is understand Mary Shelley's mother's life, which is, you know, a story that she would have been intimately familiar with, though she'd never met her. Mary Wollstonecraft, which is Mary Shelley's mother, is regarded as the foremost female Enlightenment thinker, advocate for gender equality, and supporter of the French Revolution. I, my entire life, until I met you, mm-hmm. thought that it was Mary Wollstonecraft for some reason. <laughs> So I always said, Mary Wollenstonecraft. Really? Yeah, I don't know why. Just trying to make it more complicated than it needs to be. When we first recorded this episode, you spelled it Wollstonecraft. And I was like, you spelled this wrong the entire time. And you were like, you're an idiot. You also (laughs) said that I got her book wrong. You also said Vindication of the Rights of Men, that she didn't write that and that someone else wrote that. But she did write it. I don't know why I said that. We had so many arguments about it. I don't remember that at all. Anyway, okay. Wollstonecraft was born in 1759. Her father was a violent alcoholic who beat Mary's mother and reduced the family to poverty. As a result, Wollstonecraft was economically independent from her family at the age of 19. She taught herself to write. At one point, she opened a school for girls because she was convinced that education was the key to financial independence from men. Wollstonecraft pieced together odd jobs over the years while she wrote both fiction and nonfiction. She became a well-known figure once the American and French revolutions triggered debates over political rights. Wollstonecraft inserted herself into these discussions, publishing The Vindications of the Rights of Men. She aligned herself with John Locke and Jean-Jacques Rousseau in opposition to the conservative Edmund Burke. Right. So the Enlightenment, these are all public intellectuals. Like these things are being written in, you know, serials and newspapers that like people are reading, like everybody is reading. Right. Um, After Vindication was published, it became clear to her that these philosophs, all men, were not including women in their theories about liberty. In fact, women were becoming more confined to the home than ever. And as you'll remember from our episodes um, where we talk about motherhood and fertility, um, this era saw the beginnings of sort of stay-at-home motherhood, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. So Rousseau was kind of a misogynist prick, and he believed um, that women should bear the brunt of forming their little baby tabula rasas into educated citizens. They should stay home, 
Raise the children right. barefoot and pregnant. Right. You know, and this is translated into the United States as well, right? The Republican motherhood. Republican motherhood. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> In 1792, Wollstonecraft retaliated against the male philosophers who insisted on dominating the conversation about civil liberties by publishing The Vindication of the Rights of Woman. Now, don't get us wrong, Wollstonecraft still aligned herself with Rousseau and agreed with him that women should bear the brunt of educating their children. But rather than perceiving this as a charge required by the men in her life, Wollstonecraft envisioned this as an opportunity to advocate for better education, greater responsibility, and increased opportunities for women. Wollstonecraft believed that true equality would not be possible if women remained second-class citizens. Her unconventional life demonstrated her rejection of the norms of the time. She traveled to France to witness the revolution, arriving in the midst of the reign of terror. She had many romantic relationships, one of which produced a daughter. Her first daughter's father was Wollstonecraft's on-again, off-again companion, Gilbert Imlay. Imlay was an American, born in New Jersey, with a penchant for adventure and exploration. He met Wollstonecraft in Paris during the Reign of Terror. He was acting as an American diplomat. It kind of hurts my heart that Mary Wollstonecraft's, like, first lover or first baby daddy mm-hmm. was like some guy from New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> no, right? he was fancy. He was like, I think he was like, he was like an artist and like explorer and he was serving as a diplomat. So the Americans, when the French Revolution started, they were like, oh, let's send a diplomat. And sure, he was like, sure. it'll be me. He actually protected it'll her. It'll be me. <laughs> it'll be me because the French so hated the English um, and she was English and she was there during the reign of right, terror. He right. protected her by registering her at the American embassy as his wife. I so a lot see. of people think okay. that they were married, but they weren't. They just pretended to be married so she didn't get murdered. So I should give him more credit yeah, than just being give him some a little guy more credit. from New Jersey. He's okay. not, yeah, he's not just some like, yeah. Um, <laughs> some jabroni. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as James would say. <laughs> um, so Wollstonecraft um, never married Imlay. And their relationship ended when she discovered that he was cheating on her with an actress. Well, yeah, seriously. Wollstonecraft, I mean, yeah, so he's kind of a dick. So, like, yes, I agree. <laughs> but he wasn't just, like, some rando, right? Um, so, Wollstonecraft remained an unmarried mother until she was pregnant with Mary Shelley, her second daughter. During her pregnancy, she married her partner, William Godwin, a political philosopher and anarchist. Nice. Um, Wollstonecraft died of childbed fever a few days after the birth of their daughter, Mary Godwin, obviously later Mary Shelley. So, Wollstonecraft, she had a tough life. She suffered poverty, abuse, and she attempted suicide twice. Still, she was a notable contributor to the Enlightenment, a successful writer, and her ideas about women and social justice were very well ahead of her time. So her failure to fit into this 18th century world became apparent after her death. Godwin, um, Mary Shelley's father, published Wollstonecraft's memoirs a year after her death. He was dedicated to her memory and to the causes that she espoused. So he's like, let's get her ideas published, right? However, few people appreciated her ideas or her non-conforming behavior at the time. The public was shocked by her sexual affairs, stormy relationships, and illegitimate child, as well as her suicide attempts. People were freaked out by all that. Hmm. Moreover, they were disgusted by Wollstonecraft's obvious and unabashed support for the French Revolution, right? So she died before the um, acts of the Reign of Terror became known. Ah. Um, and then when her her life story and her writings were published, people were like, wait, this supports the revolution? Like, not a good look. Interesting. Right? Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> so as we mentioned earlier, Shelley never met her mother. 
She was, however, close with her father. The ultra-liberal philosopher that he was, he strove to teach her all about her mother's life, philosophies, and writings. Though Wollstonecraft experienced the French Revolution firsthand, she died before she knew its consequences, as Marissa indicated. Her daughter, on the other hand, lived through its repercussions on the rest of Europe. It's for this reason that many literary scholars interpret Frankenstein as an allegory for the French Revolution. So... I'll break this down a little bit. So if we read Frankenstein this way as an allegory for the French Revolution, we can clearly see the idea that just like Victor's scientific experiments, 18th century discussions uh, about the rights of man had unleashed a monster, Mm -hmm. right? In Victor's case, his monster was flesh and blood, you know, a beast, right? The monster that the Enlightenment made, however, could be seen as the French Revolution and the resulting reign of terror. Edmund Burke, um, who Shelley's mother had called out in one of her political pieces, right, wrote of the French Revolution, quote, out of the tomb of the murdered monarchy in France has arisen a vast, tremendous, unformed specter. End wow, quote. that's interesting. Yeah, it's like exactly that, yeah, right? Yeah, it's, yeah. So um, the metaphor, it works really well. Um, Victor was fascinated with giving life and creating a new race. And this optimism represents the zeal and utopianism after the fall of the Bastille, right, in 1789. So after that happened, people are, like, on top of the world. They make the Paris Commune. There's, like, all of this sort of utopian um, excitedness, right, Mm -hmm. about we're going to have equality. Remember, liberty, equality, and fraternity, right? So this is kind of the motto. But like Victor's experiment, the revolution devolves into violence, anarchy, and fratricide. Robespierre guillotining enemies of the state and the streets of Paris filled with blood, right? All of these horrific, horrific things. I think in our Marquis de Sade episode, I mentioned some of the horrific violence done, especially to... um, to aristocratic women, really, really horrible, um, sodomizing rape, putting their heads on um, spears and, you know, putting them into windows and using them as puppets and real, real f***ed up stuff. Oh, jeez. As historian Francois Fure points out, Enlightenment philosophs like Descartes, Rousseau, Voltaire, etc., were academics. They were not politicians. Their ideas had no basis in real life. They were consigned to the realm of theory. Fure believes that French revolutionaries got caught up on the idealism of Enlightenment political philosophy. In other words, the French went forward with a revolution without any concrete idea about what they would create in its place. They tried to literally apply uh, Enlightenment politics to society, right? So literal equality, abolishing all vestiges of traditional society, aristocracy no longer thing, does not exist. Um, They created a new calendar that was supposed to be the ultimate rational calendar. Mm. So the months were all named after what the season what the what the climate and season looked like, right? So the cold months were named like cold month and stuff like that. I mean, in <laughs> in French, right. um, and it was ten months, and each week had ten days, and you know it was yeah, very. Yeah. They were like, let's make this as rational and metric as humanly possible. Which, if you're right? thinking about it, incredibly like, uh, you know, if you're thinking about just like, is this efficient? Yeah, it is, but it's also incredibly discombobulating. Yeah. When like, if you were like, okay, if. If the president today was, like, changing the calendar, people right. would be, like, you know, totally confined. Yeah. Right? It would screw exactly. up all sorts of things. Exactly. Like, they've been living with, you know, the, the what, the Gregorian calendar for mm-hmm. a couple hundred years. 
and they just change this calendar. Right. There's right? no more July. And now nobody, nobody's coffee. asking all these right. poor people on the streets, like, do you want to change the calendar? It's right. it's also still kind of fancy people making this decision, so right. it's not really. Right. Um, and they abolished slavery, um, which is something that a lot of people don't realize. Napoleon reinstated slavery. So, um, you know, very, very radical, taking it to its most extreme. They abolished religion. The Catholic Church in France abolished, right? Um, they abolished slavery, but, uh, only in France. And then in the empire, they were like, well, we need money. Mm -hmm. Thus the Haitian (laughs) Exactly. So, um, but, you know, rather than building a society based on these ideals, right, of equality, fraternity, um, they tried to build an ideal society, right? And it didn't work because societies do not work that way. Right. Humans are not, I mean, we are like machines. Our human bodies are like machines, but we are not machines. So it didn't work. So you can kind of see, if you think about Frankenstein, it looks very similar to that. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people, when they read it, were like, oh, she's talking about the French Revolution. Duh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can see how that that connects to the the creation of the monster. The creation, the monster is technically human because he's made out of human parts, right? And mm -hmm. he's technically alive because he animated him, but he's also different. Yeah, right. he, like, it's, doesn't uh, have it, a it's soul. It's not quite the same, right. right? If you think about it, this is the political version of Frankenstein, right? It's just like Victor's obsession with science and progress, finding a new way to give life and to cheat death. This sounds kind of awesome, right? It's just like equality and liberty and, you know, fraternity sounded to the French. It sounds awesome, but he's not prepared, right? Instead, he creates a monster and he regrets it. He doesn't consider the monster's practical need for companionship or the monster's need for love and affection from his quote-unquote father, which is Victor, right? Mm -hmm. All of these things go into making someone human. And he thought, well, a human's just body parts, right? You know, no, there's more than that, right? So when you skip those parts, it's a problem. And that's sort of like what the French Revolution did. And people were starting to realize at this time in the 18-teens what had gone on, right, and mm-hmm. during the French Revolution. Right. So the lesson, um, there is such a thing as too much enthusiasm, right? Mm-hmm. Nobody thought this through. They got in over their heads. Theory doesn't translate precisely into real life, mm-hmm. right? And political engineering, it's unnatural. It doesn't work. And if you try, you may just create a monster that you can't control, yeah. right? So you can see how you can translate this into, like, anatomy and science. and For sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, not to go all, like, Americanist on you, but, like, this is this is what the Americans were afraid of mm-hmm. in the wake of their revolution, yeah. watching what's happening in France as they're writing the Constitution. And yeah. they're like, oh, shit, we actually shouldn't give the people the right to, say, vote directly for the president. Mm-hmm. We should have a, you know, electoral college and all of these other things because people like Alexander Hamilton are like, People are stupid and crazy, and they will put our heads on spikes because mm-hmm. they can't be trusted, right? Right. Um, Fure calls it successive levels of sovereignty or something. So basically, that's like what a representative government is. You mm-hmm. you elect someone, and you know they're your representative, right? But they're also a professional politician, right? Because like, you can't actually be trusted, right? Because and like it's not just you; it's right. you and then all of Kenmore, right? Yeah. Like all of you and to be are honest a mob, at right? this point i'm sort of feeling like i agree right. <laughs> at this point in our um american politics yeah, I've sort of populism can be scary can be scary right, right yeah mm. anyway anyway the french revolution left imprints 
on all of the Western world. It shocked everyone that such a civilized society could devolve into barbaric chaos. And this is that the Americans are, are you know, really freaked out by this. Mm-hmm. It showed everyone the destructive potential of civilization. It hit close to home and many people were joined in solidarity over preventing it from ever happening again. This cause was more important than national differences. So the concept behind the story of Frankenstein would have fit snugly within the climate of the time. You know, today or, you know, in the in the 20th century, nuclear proliferation might right. be a good analogy where people like, are hey. like, whoa, OK, science kind of got away from us. Maybe yeah. we should like get together and hold hands and be like, we're not right. going to do that. Let's agree um, to not research right. nuclear until, science. <laughs> right now. <laughs> yeah, until this very moment. <laughs> right. When, like, I just got a notification two seconds ago that Iran just pulled out of their 2015 nuclear deal. Oh, I'm like, sure right. they did. Yeah. For obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. Anyway. One of the reasons why literary scholars have interpreted Frankenstein as a reaction to the French Revolution is because it was written during the zenith of literary romanticism. Romanticism was a cultural, artistic, and literary movement that was born during the Napoleonic Wars in the first decade of the 1800s. The radical violence during the Reign of Terror during the Revolution activated a conservative backlash, the legs of which had never been seen. Romanticism sprung from this productive tension between radical and conservative post-revolutionary coalitions, right? Um, So we have these conservative intellectuals like Edmund Burke and William Cox who launch a counter-revolutionary campaign of enlightened thought. They say, hey, we're enlightened, but we're more conservative, and you want that because look at what happened with the French Revolution, right? Napoleon Bonaparte ended the French Revolutionary regime with a coup in 1799. Benefiting from swells of national pride, Napoleon waged war on half of Europe, toppling governments and erecting Napoleonic republics in their places. Over time, he repressed radicals and the press and established his conservative Napoleonic code. By 1810 or so, Napoleon had become an authoritarian dictator. Meanwhile, as liberal Enlightenment politics were delegitimized and pushed underground, French revolutionary ideology was increasingly espoused by young rebellious romantics. Romantics, in many ways, constitute the third challenge to enlightened science that we'll touch on today. This is what happens in Les Miserables, mm-hmm. right? This is like the, the young, yeah. idealistic college students being like, let's storm the barricades! Yes. And then they all die. Yeah, that's romanticism. Yeah. <laughs> Literally. Dying. So <laughs> dying young is romanticism. So during you'll see you'll you'll laugh when you see how true that is. So um during the last of the Napoleonic Wars, playboys and poets such as Percy Shelley and Lord Byron made names for themselves as atheists, libertines, and anti establishmentarians, right? So a good analogy for them might be like Marlon Brando or James Dean, right? right. They're the bad boys. Mm-hmm. Better yet, for people from the early 2000s, like me, um, emo frontmen like Chris Caraba from Dashboard Confessional or Gerard Way from My Chemical Romance, right? So these boys are, they're young, they're beautiful, they're sensitive, they're lyrically talented, they're relatively privileged but slightly damaged, right? Constantly fighting with their dads and getting expelled from high school, right? (laughs) How much time did I spend, like crying and listening to Dashboard Confessional. <laughs> Me too. So much time. So <laughs> I'm crying because I'm laughing. So um, so that's what we're talking about, right? If, you're, if we're looking for a, a 
2000s analog. Okay. Right. So Percy Shelley had long, overgrown hair. He had a very pretty face. He dressed edgily, right? He refused to wear a neckerchief, right? So he wore, <gasps> yeah, woo! So he wore his linen shirts gaping open outrageously, right? Um, walking through the street with his little chest hairs popping out, right? And so to, to respectable people, he appeared very arrogant, unkempt, very sullen, right? To young women, he was magnetic and compulsively nonconformist, right? Always trying to stick it to the man, right? So Lord Byron was somewhat similar. He was well-born, but he grew into a temperamental, promiscuous dreamer, right? He fought and he died um, for Greek independence in the 1820s. Both died very young. And this was a requirement from Romantic era poets. That's you had to die young. Um, They were imitated by a gaggle of atheists, anarchists, and rebellious but talented literary minds like John Keats, also dead by 25, by tuberculosis. The most romantic way to die. Other than dying in some random... He was the most romantic of all the romantics because Mm -hmm. he was actually just a commoner who, like, taught himself how to write and was, Mm -hmm. like, the, you know, and he was sweet and adorable and then died of tuberculosis. So, Mm -hmm. anyway... Yep, John Keats. That's the way to go if you want to be romantic. <laughs> but the romantics were not all so sympathetic to French revolutionary radicals. The other two romantic greats, William Wordsworth and Samuel Taylor Coleridge, were equally enamored with Enlightenment principles, but they, unlike Shelley and Byron, saw such principles as perfectly compatible with aristocratic life. Though Shelley and Byron were privileged men, they denounced the wealth and status that they benefited from in early life. They associated with commoners, you know, John Keats, for instance. They frittered away their inheritance, and they racked up enormous debts in their quest for meaning. Wordsworth and Coleridge, on the other hand, used their aristocratic influence and extensive educations to contemplate the human condition and contribute to society as public intellectuals. Both schools were, however, shaped by the ideas and events of the French Revolution. Right, so romanticism sort of came out of this reaction to the French Revolution where you have these very radicals who are like, no, like, I st- like I'm like i still a radical, whatever, but you had to be underground because Napoleon, the Napoleonic Code, right? Mm-hmm. And then you also had um, the more, the kind of, like, older and more um, sort of mature, conservative reaction to the French Revolution that's like, no, there's a different way to do this Enlightenment thing, mm-hmm. right? Right. So that's kind of what's going on during Mary Godwin's growing up. Right. So Mary Godwin, daughter of famed feminist Mary Wollstonecraft, moved easily in romantic literary circles. Right. So her father, William Godwin, was a political philosopher who took radicals and poets under his wing. So we mentioned that earlier, but he had a little like followers, little ducklings who would follow him around Mm -hmm. who thought he was cool. So Mary met Percy Shelley in 1814, but he was already married to Harriet Westbrook. For all of their genius, romantics were not known for their fidelity. Um, which they never are. are Right, right, right. So um, Mary and Shelley fled on a trip to continental Europe as soon as they met. When they returned, Mary was pregnant with Shelley's child. Things got more tumultuous from there. So polite society shunned them for their affair, right? Um, Their primary contact being the debt collectors who hounded them and threatened debtor's prison. This was still a point where you could be thrown into prison for your debts. Mm -hmm. Um, Their daughter was born prematurely and died. In 1816, Shelley's wife Harriet died by suicide, right? So it's trauma layered upon trauma layered upon trauma, right? This is... For people who are already sort of invested in what we shall call like the emo mindset. Yes. They're already 
feeling every emotion 10 times harder than the average right. person. Right. So Mary and Shelley, they were free to marry each other right after Harriet's death. Um, so it was, they did. And then it was during this time that they traveled to meet Lord Byron in Switzerland um, during the year without a summer, as it's known, um, 1816. And this is the year that the newly married Mary Shelley conceived of the novel Frankenstein. So the couple lived kind of this nomadic existence, right? Moving from one city to the next they stayed mostly in Italy. The most different, romantic place. The most romantic of all the places, right? So they produced several more children. All but one of them died as infants or toddlers. Nice. I know. In 1820, the Shelleys heard news of the death of John Keats, their very good friend. And Percy Shelley wrote his most acclaimed work, Adonais, an elegy um, for their lost friend. So Mary Shelley wrote one novella called Matilda around this time also. So as you can imagine, however, much of her time was spent being pregnant, nursing, burying, and mourning her children. Percy Shelley should have kept it in his shorts. <clears throat> Victorian scholars posited that it was Percy Shelley rather than Mary Shelley who wrote Frankenstein. F***ing <laughs> tip. <laughs> right? Well, this little woman couldn't possibly. <laughs> You're all about the Victorians. That's all you. You have that cross They're to bear. Dicks. <laughs> Most of them were unable to conceive of the possibility that a woman could create a gothic sci-fi literary masterpiece. They were, of course, wrong. Though romanticism was largely dominated by men, you know, like, you know, what's new? There were a significant number of women authors and poets who enriched the tradition. Letitia Elizabeth Landon, for instance, was referred to as the female Byron, and, and she died by suicide at the age of 36. That's the same age that Byron died also, so, and the same age that Ada Lovelace died. The Romantic era allowed for a brief period of relative gender equity and cheeky permissiveness before the 1830s ushered in uh, the strict Victorian code of behavior. Right. So a lot of people don't realize that. I think a lot of times, too, because in America we have, like, antebellum and postbellum. Those are, like, the two kind of big. And then Victorian is sort of, like, straddles them. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, it's like a weird thing that we import from England. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So because of that, People don't realize, you know, antebellum is all like, uh, racism, slavery, and then postbellum is all like, reconstruction and more racism. And, yeah, more racism. <laughs> more racism. Yeah. Different but, kinds of slavery. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, but uh, culturally, things, there was this brief yes. period of romanticism that was, like, especially when it comes to art and literature, that was mm -hmm. like, it's totally different than the Victorian mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. counterpart. And so a lot of times when you think of antebellum America or early 19th century, you're th you think of Victorian, but mm -hmm. that's not, this is before that. Right. So yeah. just to, to clarify to people who might not be, there, in this very brief period, I mean, it only lasts for maybe 20 years maximum. So um, Lord Byron's only legitimate child, a daughter named Ada, benefited from this brief vulnerability of the patriarchy, right? She was educated in the 1820s. So Lady Byron, Lord Byron's wife, long-suffering wife, was convinced that Lord Byron was insane and that his insanity would also manifest in their daughter, especially if she dabbled in the literary arts from a young age, like her father had. So Lady Byron insisted on a math and science-only curriculum for her daughter. Um, I shouldn't say only. Math and science heavy curriculum for her daughter. Ada Lovelace became a world-renowned mathematician and the author of the very first computer program. Lord Byron's promiscuity and Lady Byron's preoccupation with vindictive plots against him meant that Ada grew up without the parental affection and control that might have formed her into a respectable Victorian lady. So 
she's also kind of living on the margins, right? So it's not entirely clear if this was a good or bad thing. I feel really stupid. I've read I've read things about Ada Lovelace. I, like, I, I, I knew that she was a really awesome person. No f***ing idea that she was Lord Byron's daughter. I, oh, that's really? That's the first time I've ever heard that. <laughs> So I was Were you like, like Googling it? I was I was looking at Did you at, Google we, to check me? No, I didn't. I but I looked at the Wikipedia because yeah. I was like, seriously? How could I not have known that? And I yeah. was just like It's my brain just exploded. It's That's insane. Wild. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. But but it, it all comes back to this and, and, and something we should I don't mention it in this copy, but but I, I should just say as an aside, Ada Lovelace tried to combine um the literary literary arts and science so she had mm-hmm. this thing called like poetical science and stuff mm. that she was it's sort of like um math that was actually poetic and elegant or like mm-hmm. it, it was it's very she yes. tried to combine the two um because she just had a very poetic sort of mind as you really yeah. she probably would but her mom was so anti-literary wow. arts because byron was such a dickhole that she so right. she it's very interesting so so that's kind of why I included her because yeah. this is all kind of coming together we have all the science stuff we have right. all this the literary stuff, and art stuff right. and then we come back it, to the science stuff sort yeah. of that's fascinating for feminism Lovelace's life story like Wollstonecraft's served as an example of female intellectual prowess and ingenuity but like Wollstonecraft Lovelace suffered for her art Lovelace suffered neglect as a child and ostracism by her peers as an adult. She was exploited by her mentor, Charles Babbage, who took credit for her work. She developed a gambling habit and suffered constant interference, but no affection, from her mother, who believed her to be a moral reprobate. She died at the age of 36 36 from uterine cancer. (laughs) It's the first I've got one year to go. (laughs) Done. Clearly, the instability of romantic era life brought as much opportunity for women as it did sorrow, right? This is something we see a lot of when you see more opportunity and more mobility. There's also, like, less stability and um, a lot of sorrow, right? So the same can be said for Mary Godwin Shelley, right? So we know now that Shelley was remarkably talented in her own right. Um, We've been able to kind of show that these Victorians were wrong about Percy actually writing Frankenstein. She produced an impressive body of work, especially after Percy's accidental drowning in 1822, because he had to go out like a diva as always. So Mary Shelley's body of work is often perceived to be a departure from the work of romantics like her husband and enlightenment philosophers like her parents. In some ways, this is true. Most romantics were mavericks, loners, anarchists, right? But as we mentioned earlier, there was another strain of romanticism that harnessed the optimism of enlightenment social science and espoused this more communal ethic. Her works often suggest that women, their role as mothers, and their natural skills as empaths were the key to improving civil society. So in this sense, she fits right in with the teachings of her father and late husband. Unsurprisingly, given her upbringing, more recent scholarship on her lesser-known works has revealed she was just as politically radical as Percy Shelley, Lord Byron, or her parents. Many scholars have performed feminist readings and critiques of Shelley's Frankenstein. We are by no means literary scholars, but they often do a good job of explaining why a work of literature was received the way that it was at the time that it was published and why we understand it the way that we do today. One such literary scholar, Ellen Moores, argues that Frankenstein's monster represents the, quote, phantasmagoria of the nursery. 
Shelley was no stranger to the medical dangers of childbirth. She may have meant to emphasize the messy, heartbreaking realities of childbirth at the time. Her mother, Mary Wollstonecraft, had died of childbed fever. Wollstonecraft birthed her daughter without incident, but failed to deliver the placenta after giving birth to Mary Godwin Shelley. This inevitably led to putrefaction and infection, from which Wollstonecraft died in a matter of days. Mary Godwin Shelley herself also birthed a baby who passed away shortly after birth. And then she had one toddler and one older infant, right? Yeah, so yeah. Um, if you think about it, the character of Victor Frankenstein, he seeks to bypass the female body, right? right? He's mm-hmm. going to make the female body obsolete. He creates life without a womb, mm-hmm. right? So Victor, he's messing with nature, right? Women are the creators of life. Uh, but he's a man doing it without a woman's help, right? And man is not supposed to make life. Women are. That could be the lesson, right? Um, Or maybe perhaps God is, right? So Victor kind of suffers in the story because he's playing God as well as playing woman. Right. So for years, this suggested to scholars that Frankenstein had not been written by Shelley. Um, Unlike most novels written by women, Frankenstein contains no strong female heroines. Male scholars find feminist readings of Frankenstein to be particularly suspect um, for this reason. But literary scholar Kate Ellis claims that that's the entire point. Mm -hmm. The absence of a female heroine was strategic, mirroring the absence of female figures in Shelley's world. And the reason that they were so absent is because they all died very young, right? right? (laughs) So um, there were, of course, a few Wollstonecraft, Shelley herself, Ada Lovelace, women who were um, who were not absent from the scene, who were famous, right? But they paid high prices for their visibility. Ellis sees Frankenstein as an expose and criticism of bourgeois sex roles, this whole domestic spheres idea, right? Mm-hmm. The only women in the novel are passive, helpless wretches. They're either sick, dead, or unable to control their lives. And it's interesting to think about what women at the time might have thought about Frankenstein when they read it. Like, if they would have seen their own plight in it. Absolutely. Yeah. And when you think about the fact that Elizabeth, Elizabeth Lavenza, and Justine both die because of mm-hmm. Victor's decision making, mm-hmm. right? Like, they, they are kind of at the whim of the men in their lives in these unintended ways that yeah. seem very relevant it's to It's literally her Mary Wollstonecraft, Ada Lovelace, yeah. and Mary Shelley herself. That right. was what their lives were like. Right. Yeah. yeah. And the, the mother, um, Victor's mother, dies in childbirth. Having William. So, yeah, yeah, it's wild. (laughs) Perhaps more obvious than the themes of the French Revolution, romanticism, and contested gender roles, Frankenstein's gothic horror resonated most with audiences who were suspicious of medical science. In addition to radical political philosophy, the Enlightenment was also marked by doctors and scientists taking medical science even further. This is where we encounter the more obvious Frankensteinian themes. One of the things that really captured the imagination of some scientists, and certainly much of the public, is the question of reanimation. If humans are machines, as was proven or suggested by Harvey and reinforced by atheist and deist philosophers, can human bodies then be repaired and set to running again like machines? Why do they stop working permanently? If humans were animals, rather than being formed in the image of God, how were they animated? What was the spark that made people alive? Could it be artificially imposed? 
was it possible for doctors and scientists to bring people back once they had died? Enlightenment-era scientists started to dabble in the mysteries of life that had always been considered outside of the boundaries of what humans were supposed to be able to do. This is what the um, his, his one professor is, is saying, Waldman is saying mm-hmm. in that chemistry lecture, yeah. right? That we can reach, I can't remember the exact quote, but we can reach into the dark recesses of nature and mm-hmm. find it in its hiding places, like unlock right. the secrets of the world. Right. This is exactly what people are, are trying to figure out. Yeah. I mean, that sounds great in one way if you're going to use it to relieve human suffering or something mm-hmm. but also it can be scary it's it sounds it's scary right. right so so one great example uh is the galvanism movement so a scientist named luigi galvani did experiments with electricity and dead animals especially frogs and discovered that when you electrocuted frogs they twitched he proposed that animals contained electricity within their bodies and that perhaps by reinvigorating that electricity we could bring dead things back to life Galvani's research was mentioned in Frankenstein when um, the lightning hits the tree. And Galvani was not entirely wrong. This is the same theory that led us to electric defibrillators. His nephew, Giovanni Aldini, um, takes this theory one step further and begins actually experimenting with electricity on dead animals, uh, often before an audience. So his experiment on a dog in front of French scientists was even recorded. Quote, Aldini, after having cut off the head of a dog, passed the current of a strong battery, the mere contact triggers truly frightful convulsions. The mouth opens, teeth rattle, eyes roll in their sockets. And if reason did not deter the agitated imagination, one would almost believe that the animal is again suffering and alive, end quote. Aldini wanted to understand what he called, quote, the human animal machine, which I think is really telling. Just there in that quote, you see the shift in language. Thinking of the human body is on the same level as an animal, as easily understandable as a machine that can be taken apart and tinkered with. Nothing especially human, nothing especially divine or divinely designed. Aldini, like Vesalius, eventually got permission to experiment on cadavers after execution. One time, Aldini was brought the body of George Foster, who had been convicted for murdering his wife and child. In front of a medical audience, Aldini performed an experiment on the corpse of the man by applying electricity to his face. According to observers, quote, the jaw of the deceased criminal began to quiver and the adjoining muscles were horribly contorted and one eye actually opened. Aldini did the same thing to the arms and legs, which contorted and shook. During another experiment, quote, every muscle in his countenance was simultaneously thrown into fearful action. Rage, horror, despair, anguish, and ghastly smiles united their hideous expression in the murderer's face, end quote. Galvani, Aldini, and their observers knew that they were not bringing them all the way back to life, but the potential seemed like it was there. The corpses were smiling, frowning, seeming as though they were alive. Perhaps they were almost alive. Maybe the next step would bring them all the way back to life. We know that Mary Shelley knew about these experiments because she wrote about them in the introduction to the 1831 edition of Frankenstein. She wrote more about galvanism than Aldini, but her readers would certainly have recognized elements of the text as having been inspired by him. But on the other side of this equation was how regular people thought about bodies and death. Death was an important right for a person and their family. This is something we've talked about kind of over and over again on this on this show. Mm-hmm. Um, 
In Europe and in the U.S., people believed deaths should occur in particular ways. Beautiful deaths were to be attended by the family, maybe even by a religious figure. Despite the growing visibility of deism and atheism, most evidence suggests that ordinary folks still believed in God and death was for them a religious experience. Death was a sacred moment. Dying people were understood to be in an in-between place between this world and the next. In fact, Elizabeth just talked about this a lot in her episode on spiritualism, just, you know, not that long ago. So if you want a refresher on, on how people thought about death in the 19th century, at least in the 19th century U.S., that's a good place to go. Mm-hmm. This concept became even more significant during the transatlantic waves of religious revival that rocked Europe and the Americas in the 1730s and 1740s, the first Great Awakening mm-hmm. in quotes. The boring one. The boring one, I think, anyway. And again, in the first half of the 19th century, the second Great Awakening, the interesting one. <laughs> if Romanticism was the secular response to Enlightenment rationalism, the second Great Awakening was the religious analog. Right. So, um, you know, we still have these different strains, but you can see how one is sort of leading to the other, right? In the 19th century, people begin to think about heaven as a literal place where you'll be you, not just some sort of disembodied soul. We talked about this in our recent Cult of the Dead episode. Right, the Elizabeth episode I just mentioned. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, People believed that your actual body would go to heaven where you'd enjoy eternal joy and peace, living in paradise alongside your loved ones. One reason why people resisted cremation for a long time, until really relatively recently, um, was this belief. So if your body was destroyed, burned into ash, how would you function in heaven, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, The importance of a beautiful death in the preservation of the human body for its life in heaven is obvious in another 19th century literary masterwork, Uncle Tom's Cabin. Um, It was published in 1852, and, and here's this one passage that kind of illustrates this very beautifully. Quote, the bed was draped in white, and there, beneath the drooping angel figure, lay a little sleeping form, sleeping never to waken. There she lay. Robed in one of the simple white dresses she had been wont to wear when living, the rose-colored light through the curtain cast over the icy coldness of death a warm glow. The heavy eyelashes drooped softly on the pure cheek. The head was turned a little to one side, as if in natural sleep. But there was diffused over every lineament of the face that high celestial expression, that mingling of rapture and repose, which showed it was no earthly or temporary sleep, but the long sacred rest which he giveth his beloved. There is no death to such as thou, Eva, neither darkness, not shadow of death, only such a bright fading as when the morning start fades in the cold dawn. Thine is the victory without the battle, the crown without the conflict. End quote. This was a reference to Psalm 127, God grants rest to his loved ones. But in Shelley's Frankenstein, she writes of Victor's profane fingers and his possession of the, quote, tremendous secrets of the human frame. It's easy to suppose that Shelley understood dissection and autopsy as a desecration of this beauty and repose. Certainly many others did. Dissection took away what was sacred about the body and reduced it to parts. It also took what was private and individual and made it into something tawdry, something that was displayed for all the public to see. Dissected bodies were deprived of their identities, their individuality, and their sacredness. For many Europeans and Americans, this was akin to a rape. 
the forcible desecration and penetration, those profane fingers, right, entering the body, an act of degradation. When Shelley writes about the tremendous secrets of the human frame, she's reminding the reader of an earlier passage in the book where she refers to nature's hiding places. She provocatively poses the question, is there a reason this stuff is secret and hidden? Should we know this? However, medical schools and anatomy classes weren't going away. In Shelley's time, anatomical specimens were in greater demand than ever before. Medical schools often arranged with local authorities to receive the bodies of executed criminals. This was especially common in Europe, uh, which had centuries-old medical legal structures and procedures. In America, there were smaller concentrations of population, a newer, less developed medical legal structure. Um, there were therefore fewer executions, and bodies were even more scarce. American medical schools, which grew rapidly in the antebellum period, often relied on extra legal means of getting bodies. You know, and, and by that, we mean grave robbing or body snatching. This is pretty much exactly what Victor Frankenstein did in the book. Now, doctors themselves, unlike Frankenstein, were not out doing the digging and collecting. They instead outsourced this to men who were often called resurrection men. They were often working class or poor men who struck a deal with an anatomy professor at a local medical college who commissioned stolen bodies. Many saw this as an easy way to make a few dollars. So where are resurrection men getting their bodies? Not rich people's cemeteries, right? <laughs> they're getting them from almshouses, paupers' graves, and in the United States, they're getting them from the cemeteries that held Black and Native American bodies. They reasoned that these were the bodies that were less likely to be monitored in the first place and also less uh, likely to be discovered missing after the theft. And of course, we should also say much less likely that the peop the families of those bodies would have any power to do anything to, to get right, that body back. Right, even if they back. did right, discover exactly. it. Right, exactly. Right. So occasionally, local folks would discover that this was taking place, or rumors would spread about doctors exhuming bodies that the community believed crossed the line. We see some sporadic panics that were induced by both real and imagined body snatching. So for example, we see this in New York City in 1788. A group of kids playing near a New York hospital saw a medical student named John Hicks dissecting a disembodied arm. The kids were scared but fascinated and gathered at the window to see what he was up to. Annoyed by their voyeurism, Hicks waved the arm at the boys and said that the arm belonged to one of the boys' mothers who had just passed away, which is so cruel. It's so mean. Oh my and God, it turns so out to be true. Oh. Or more or less true. So the boy ran home and told his father, who, of course, panicked and dug up his wife's grave and, lo and behold, found her missing. Horrified, he gathered up a crowd to go storm the hospital. When they arrived and broke in, they found the dissecting rooms full of decomposing anatomized corpses. The mob pulled the corpses and other anatomical specimens out of the building and set them on fire. Again, depending on their perspective, this meant different things. Destroying items of sacrilege or, from the doctor's perspectives, destroying precious scientific knowledge. The mob then ran through the streets of New York City, breaking into hospitals and medical schools, searching for bodies. They attacked medical students at Columbia College, throwing rocks and bricks at doctors and medical schools. They shouted, bring out your doctors! 
Governor of New York, George Clinton, called out the militia who ended up firing on the crowds to get them to turn back. Somewhere around 20 people were killed. There was a grand jury investigation, but there never ended up being a trial or a conviction associated with the, the doctor's riot. After this riot, Americans were paranoid that their loved ones' bodies would be spirited away under the cover of night to be used in horrific scientific experiments. People stood guard over the graves of their loved ones. This had a profound impact on the medical profession in America. It bred distrust and anger towards doctors. Some medical doctors paid for advertisements that swore they had never, quote, robbed any cemetery in the city. <laughs> I love this. I know, of course. <laughs> This was a clever wordplay because most got their bodies from cemeteries outside the boundaries of the city. Right. This is why New York City was very small. And so they were just going outside of the city to right. get their bodies. Exactly. Now, I also want to say, it, not only does it you know, have this kind of impact specifically in New York City, but the ongoing robbing um, and medical experimentation on black bodies in the South leads to the creation of sort of the... Um, the very common um, mythology in the South of night doctors, these like mm -hmm. scary sort of nightmare um, boogeymen who come and steal black people away in the middle of the night. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah. So it, it really has a psychological impact. And we don't get, we don't get to it here, but I did want to point out that this is one of the factors that led to alternative practitioners having a lot more authority in America than they mm -hmm. had really anywhere else. Right. Because there's distrust. Professional doctors were yeah. seen as kind of elite uppity a-holes, right? And so right. especially during the Jacksonian de democratic era where right. people were all into the, uh, you have democracy. The Thompsonians yep. and eclectics. It's like, mm -hmm. no, um, these fancy people, you know, steal from people's graves and whatever, where I'd rather go to my herbologist or whatever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. My homeopathist. Mm -hmm. My mesmerist. Mm-hmm. This New York City body snatching riot was not an isolated incident. Even though it seems really, like, wild, it was not actually all that unusual. Between 1765 and 1854, in the United States, there were 17 anatomy riots, which is a lot. In some cases, though, the quest for dead bodies went beyond simply grave robbing. In the 1820s, there was a very prominent anatomist at the University of Edinburgh, uh, which at the time was one of Europe's leading medical schools. Um, and this anatomist's name was Robert Knox. Um, we tell some of Knox's story in the pathology episode, Marissa's episode um, on pathology, but we'll do a quick recap here. According to Scottish law, medical schools could have access to bodies from certain categories, suicide victims, prisoners, and orphans. Great. <laughs> what a wonderful category or group of people. Even so, there were still never enough bodies to meet demand. And Knox was a world-renowned anatomy professor, and he taught up to 400 students at a time. Part of his draw was that he promised his students a full demonstration on fresh anatomical subjects at each lecture. In other words, he promised to always have plenty of cadavers to dissect. This meant that Knox had little choice but to resort to purchasing cadavers from resurrection men. At the same time, two men, William Burke and William Hare, two Irishmen living in Edinburgh, found themselves with a dead body. A lodger in Hare's house died of natural causes. Burial would be expensive, so after discussing their options, they decided to recoup Hare's loss of lodging income and sell the body. <laughs> As you do. Right. Burke and Hare successfully sold the body to Robert Knox, who gave them a decent sum for it. 
Eventually, they decided that this was a lucrative practice, but it was also too onerous to wait around for folks to die, right? I mean, this had only happened by happenstance. This person just dropped dead in their boarding house. So why not cut out the middle step? The pair ended up killing around 16 people, ranging from a young boy to an elderly uh, to elderly men and women, mostly poor people or travelers who they figured wouldn't be missed. They finally got caught when they suffocated a woman named Margaret Dougherty, who they hid under the bed. Like they killed her and then shoved her under the bed to kind of get her out of the way temporarily. Mm-hmm. She was then discovered when some previous lodgers who had stayed in that room returned to gather something that they'd left behind. They go in, they're poking around, like looking for this woman's stockings or something, and they look under the bed. Holy <laughs> dead lady under there. So they find the woman and they notify the police. It goes without saying that this caused a media sensation. Burke and Hare were charged with murder, but Knox was not held legally responsible for the crimes, even though everyone knew he was the one paying for and benefiting from them. It's hard to differentiate between libel and investigative journalism from this point in time. So even today, historians wonder if Knox knew his specimens were murder victims. Some historians have even argued that Knox committed murder by his own hand in some cases. That seems unlikely, but he probably knew that Burke and Hare's methods were unorthodox, right? They always had fresh bodies, which must have been suspicious, but he chose not to ask questions. Right. Hare turned King's evidence and was immune from prosecution if he gave the police Burke, which he did. So Hare just got off scot-free, even though he was just as involved. Which is wild. I mean, it was his boarding house. Right. So um, Burke was hanged January 28th, 1829, in front of a very large crowd. His body was publicly dissected just a few days after by a professor. It was not Knox at the University of Edinburgh. Public crowds were allowed to enter the dissection theater after the procedure to see the body. The professor at one point dipped his pen in Burke's blood and wrote in his notes, this is written with the blood of William Burke, who was hanged in Edinburgh. This blood was taken from his head. Ew. I know. That's my favorite part, though, in lecture when I give that, when I say that part. Yeah. And all my students are like, yeah, they make these horrible faces. It's so cute. (laughs) Head blood. (laughs) Head blood. The body was then given to the Anatomical Museum of the University, the University of Edinburgh, where it was cleaned and disarticulated. His skin was removed and tanned like leather, some of which was used to bind various items like books and wallets. Hair disappeared into obscurity. Knox's reputation was irreparably tarnished, and he was eventually forced to leave the university, but he did continue work as an anatomist at a hospital in England. Burke's body is still at the University of Edinburgh. Yeah, I don't think I It's articulated and hanging at the university. I don't know if they have it on display, um, our, you know, David Silkenat, if you're listening to this, he teaches at the University mm-hmm. of Edinburgh, please weigh in and let us know if you've ever seen his body. But it's, it's still there as far as I know. As we discussed in our pathology episode, it was common for criminals' bodies to be mutilated after death as part of their punishment. This explains the fate of Burke's body. Authorities meant to give him the insult of having his body put on display, denied a decent burial and funeral, to desecrate and degrade his body like those that he had murdered. 
Anatomy was a major point of contention between doctors and lay people, as you can see, but it was also one thing that differentiated medical doctors from ordinary people, right? So doctors had the power and the ability to look inside the human body, the power of life and death, the power to understand the inner workings of the human body, and this was a power that had previously been attributed only to God. So to readers growing up in this uh, in this time and place, right? right? Frankenstein symbolized more than just a scary story. It homed in on the things that they worried about most as people living in the Western world in the first half of the 19th century. Gender roles, scientific progress, medical research, radical politics, and the contest between spirituality or the divine on the one hand and irrationality or progress on the other. But the reason that it always, that these episodes on Frankenstein, when, when I lecture when I in my medicine class, I have four lectures that all mm-hmm. revolve around Frankenstein. And it's because that book is packed. Mm-hmm. It's packed with stuff. That's why it continues to fascinate people today. It's why it still, you know, is made into movies and it shows up everywhere. It's because it's packed and it touches on so many things that are, you know, still very, very relevant. Right. And, I think and I think at the time it would have seemed like, oh my God, this right. this puts all of my worries and things that I care about into one story. Right. It wasn't scary just because it was a monster story. It was scary because of the kind of monster story that it was telling. Yeah. Kind of like a technological dystopia thing. Yeah. It's sort of like how, um, how, uh, The Handmaid's Tale is so, like, haunting to people today. Yeah. I think, you know, a couple hundred years from now, you could probably look back and say, like, okay, why did that resonate with people right. so much? And it's a, a similar kind of I mean, of when way. was The Handmaid's Tale written? In the 80s, 80s? right? Yeah. But when is the, I mean, when is its kind of cultural moment? Right. It's not as much even in the 80s or 90s. It's kind of right now. now right? I mean, <laughs> yes. that's. Well, that's sort of similar to this. <clears throat> the French Revolution happened. But when people were worrying the most yeah. about the French Revolution was actually after, after, and they're actually learning. It's kind of like the Holocaust, too. Like, yeah. the Holocaust was horrific, right? But it took a while for people to learn everything that happened and to think about right. the impact and to think about what it actually meant moving forward, right? right. And that yeah. is kind of what happened as well. It wasn't until after 1800 that people started realizing how the French Revolution had really um, shooken up their whole lives, you know, mm-hmm. in the way Absolutely. that they viewed the world. So kind of interesting. Yeah, definitely. So sorry for this very, very long episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Yeah. It's I, one of my I, faves. I think that, I, I think people really will enjoy it. I'm really glad we finally came back around to it. And if you have thoughts about the episode, if you, if you want to weigh in, if you've seen Vesalius's anatomized skeleton in Basel or William Burke's body in Edinburgh, tell us. Because that's I'm really surprised it hasn't been repatriated to Ireland yet. That's shocking to me. Oh, I don't know. Because I that's feel like really the Irish point. would be like, "No, we're doing this." Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't. I, I really don't know. That's an interesting question. Because because okay. keeping bodies now is tricky business. Yeah, yeah. It's like not very nice or ethical. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway, right. uh, leave us a five star review on Apple Podcast uh, or wherever you listen. Or wherever you listen. Those are super helpful to us. They help us get new listeners. Um, Join our Dig History Pod Squad on Facebook. Follow uh, us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Dig underscore history. You and can email us at hello, hello. at digpodcast.org. <laughs> hello. <laughs> All right. We got to um, go. Okay. Bye. <laughs> bye. A fala. A fala. But it's also Franklin. Franklin. <laughs> Franklin's time. <laughs>
This is the same theory that led us to electric defib defibrillators. Oh my God, I know how to say defibrillators. I just can't <laughs> when I have to read it, I guess. Led us to um, electric defibrillators. Oh my God. I didn't know how to say it. I just can't look at it when I say it, I guess. Swearing that he will be Vic, he will be Victor. Rousseau was kind of a misogynist pricked, uh, pricked. <laughs> it was about moving away from darkness of dot. It was about, <gasps> It was the anatomist who could cut and break and remue, excuse me. Through real world. Oh my God, I can't say real world. Summit? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, or you could say, I don't know, I want Height? to say apogee, but. Apogee? That's what I wanted to say. That's just the baby. The it's zenith. the right word. The zenith. There you go. Okay. Do it. Uh, blah, blah. Toppling governments and erecting Napoleonic Republicans in their places. Republics. <clears throat> what did I say? Republicans. Oh, I don't know where that came from. I've got Republicans on the brain. <laughs> um, feverishly fashioning a creature out of old body parts. Which Can I help you? Yeah, I need to get Can it. I <laughs> help you? <laughs> Uh-oh. It says it did. Do it. Or no, you said you put Harvey married, Elizabeth won, James won, and Charles won's personal doctor. And so like it, it made it yeah, like the way she that was it was married, phrased. Elizabeth won. And I was like, wait, what? Yeah, William Harvey married <laughs> Elizabeth the first. Well, that's what I was like, wait, what? It was about moving away from the darkness and dogma and blind faith. Nope. The darkness of dogma and blind faith. I didn't change this at all. This is your, you, I know. you keep struggling on your own words that I didn't change. I know, I know. Okay. Um, I, the last time I read Frankenstein, I listened to the audible version and it was narrated by the guy who plays cousin Matthew on Downton Abbey okay, and he yeah. like was really into it and he had this like accent the whole time that he uh -huh. was Victor and whenever he says Elizabeth Lavenza, he's like Elizabeth Lavenza. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's the, it's, you had that he had a, was in a hunting accident, which it might have been hunting, but he actually fell from oh, somewhere. Oh, that's the story that I, I can't remember what the source was, but yeah. I got it from something else. I, no, I'm sure you did, but what I read was a fall, but it's probably, he probably was in a tree or something, and then, I don't know, maybe he was a twitcher. I don't know, you know. What's a twitcher? Come on! British crime dramas, twitchers are people who look at birds. They oh, talk okay, about it. Okay. Remember, like, Midsummer Murders talks about twisters oh like every There's season. There's like five episodes about twisters. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, anyway. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, oh.